My first question is, why did you become a painter? Sit there. Sorry? Put that down. Put that over there. Do you... I mean, I don't... And sit over there. Everything moves towards the end, mate. This is the only profession in the world where your employer wants you to die. Uh, what do you, what do you mean? What do you think I mean? Count the art dealers at my fucking funeral. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Pekovic, and this is episode number 211. Releasing in Australian cinemas on May 16 is acute misfortune a biopic that focuses on the last years of controversial artist Adam Cullen and the relationship with his biographer, Eric Jensen. Fascinating, unconventional and utterly engrossing, Acute Misfortune is not only one of the finest Australian films to be released in some time, but it also places a spotlight on one of Australia's most infamous yet enigmatic artists. Joining me today is the director, producer and co-writer of Acute Misfortune, Thomas M. Wright. Thomas, I thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, just reading back on some of the press you did on this film and the film premiere back um, last year at the Melbourne Film Festival, um, I read that your initial reaction to Cullen, or at least the extract from um, Eric Jensen's book about Adam Cullen, wasn't that wasn't that highly opinionated of him, um, to, to put the no. least. How does that kind of eventuate to you making a film about him, your directorial well, well, debut? It made me kind of irrationally angry. Um, and I think irrationally is the key, um, the key word there, I think, because, um, so I read an excerpt from the book, um, that was used to sort of publicize the release of the book. And I just, um, you know, I think being, uh, being an artist myself, coming from more of an experimental background, coming from, um, installation art and it's sort of experimental theater and that sort of stuff, um, you know, I... It, Adam sort of seemed to have an attitude and persona. Um, I just couldn't reconcile. Um, but the thing that fascinated me immediately, and of course, obviously, this is what the film is about, is that it's a portrait of him and that was written by someone with their own subjective opinion of this person, and I was receiving it as though it was fact. Mm. Um, Adam deserved his reputation. Um, he built it... He assembled it um, in very unusual ways. But that book became this access point to a lot of people, to to him, and to a kind of definitive version of him. And I think I was interested in how problematic that can be to try to write the truth of another person. When it came to writing the screenplay for this film, you wrote that with Eric Jensen, who, of course, right. wrote the book. How did that decision come about? Was that something that you really wanted to do from the from the get go, um, because of what you just said before about? Well, what I'd never made a film before. I had made short films. Um, I worked as an actor a lot in Australia and overseas, and obviously I come from a very strong theatre background, um, and that had been my entire background. Really, was writing, directing, production design, producing. But I found myself working as an actor um, in film, and I. Um, I pursued the rights independently on my own without anybody else, wrote to Eric and said, look, I think there's an awful film 
I wanted to make a way about a film about the way that culture is shaped and the way that culture shapes people. Because I saw Adam as a really a real example of that. This kind of outsider, violent, wild man of Australian art, positioned against this young, you know, genius journalist who had his own newspaper by the age of 24. I just thought there was some really interesting sort of cultural kind of archetypes at work there. And and I said to Eric, you know, I don't know what I what I would do with this. I would be open to developing it in any number of ways. I think you should probably be involved in the in the writing of the film. And he really jumped at that and we said, well maybe we could maybe we could end up developing this together. My background's very collaborative, working with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And I thought it would be interesting to harness his skills and his knowledge. And to be honest, I don't think you could have written the book, this film, without Eric. Um, and it was a very close, very difficult process at times. You know, it was three years of writing while Eric was publishing his paper and I was working overseas. We wrote back and forward. We'd spend months together in a room at times. And it was very confronting for him because obviously some of the events in the film are pretty extreme getting shot in the leg with a shotgun, being thrown from a motorbike um, and being lied to and lying himself um, at times. And the film is really equally critical of the idea of the journalist and the kind of artist as um, people that are dancing hand in hand um, yes, through this. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a difficult process and complex process writing it, but, but, but um, yeah, terrific. What what I found really interesting is that you have your co-screenwriter is a main character in your movie. Um, yeah. When it comes to doubt, when it comes to adapting, I don't know. I, I know you can't speak for Eric, but do you think Eric was looking at it as he was writing an extension of himself, or essentially what you're creating is a new character? I know he's based I on said, a real person, but exactly, uh, exa- that's exactly right. I said to him very early on, "You're going to have to separate yourself from yourself. Yeah, you're going to have to look at yourself very objectively." We're going to have to consider that you could well be the villain in this story, not Adam. Um, because if you go out to write this damning version of this individual um, and protect yourself, you're going to come off like a complete bastard. And more than that, it's going to be false. So we need to discuss what the um, accountability of journalism is here, what the accountability of the biography is here. Are you like a conflict photographer in a war situation where, a, where a, a general pulls a guy over and shoots him in the head because you're there with your camera? Um, is this presence of the media, this presence of this system around Adam supporting him, is it encouraging this kind of fall? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the truth is um, very difficult to put your finger on with this story, but we needed to balance the film with with those ideas and with those kind of challenges, you know. When it came to the casting of Toby Wallace as Eric, um, what was it about him that you saw that could do this role justice? Was he like someone on a, a list of people that you've known or worked with before? No, at- no, no. I didn't know Toby. And, um, and um, I always said about this part, because Eric is very refined, um, Operator, he's a very thoughtful, highly intelligent individual. You don't get your own newspaper by the age of twenty-four by accident. Mm. And Eric founded the Saturday paper um, at the age of twenty-four. And I thought it would be 
you know, very easy to find someone who could express um, that sort of refinement, you know, that goes hand in hand with a lot of young actors who are private school educated and, you know, come from some sort of slightly worldly thing relatively to their age. But what I needed was kind of a brawler. I felt like I needed someone who could, who you believed would continue going back, who believed in investing in their own um, pain as a way of learning. And so we got a tape in from Toby. There were about 150 people auditioned for, for Eric and everybody thought he was wrong. And I was like, no, this is absolutely the guy. He had a shaved head. He was in the middle of filming Romper Stomper. He is such a lad. Um, he's a very complex person. I'm hugely, I couldn't be more fond of Toby. And I think as an actor, he's one of the great actors out there. Um, but he, he, what I needed was someone who could go toe-to-toe with Adam and someone who could go toe-to-toe with Dan Henshaw in this part. Um, and, yeah, just believe that kind of rat-bag, rat-cunning quality that was going to keep him coming. And I, and I just believed that with Toby. Dan Henshaw, of course, plays Adam Cullen, and he's terrific in the role, terrific in more the stuff that he does, of course. Um, when it came to casting Adam, was Dan Henshaw someone that you definitely had something in mind for this role? I, I didn't see anybody else. Um, I had been really, like a lot of filmmakers, pretty obsessed with Snowtown and yeah. pretty obsessed with what Justin Curzer was able to achieve, but also with Dan's intensity the way that he carried that film and the way that he counterpointed this kind of enormous menace that he's able to generate with a warmth and lightness and affability, attractiveness. You can't help but, but kind of like him. Um, and I, and I, we, needed that. we needed that conflict. If it had just been dark, there are too many ways to tell this story that, that make it really difficult to watch. And I wanted it to be accessible. I wanted it to incorporate the Adam that existed long before the decline of his health started. And I just felt that Dan had those extraordinary sides and layers to him. And it was a very difficult film. Again, it's a, it's, you know, it was a difficult film for Dan um, because not only of the ideas that Adam's kind of espousing, but because... Um, of the enormous weight that he gained. Dan gained about 20 kilos to begin um, playing Adam, and through the course of the film, he lost well over that um, because the film covers the last four years of a person's life as Adam sort of um, diminished. Um, So his commitment um, and his emotional intelligence that he brought to this film and his conflict with the character were just um, essential, you know, and I think they've led to a really, a really rare performance. One thing I was curious about in regards to you and Daniel talking about how to portray Adam, um, it's the relationship between madness and creativity, um, yep. which is something that's been talked about quite a bit in films and, and such. Sure. And there's studies, I think last, I've actually read it like today, there was a study in Sweden from like 2010 that showed that highly creative people and people with, say, a condition like schizophrenia had a certain brain chemistry that was very much in common. Right. Was that something right. that you guys touched on? Because Adam did did suffer from a bipolar disorder. That was part what made his he life so complex. He was complex diagnosed with bipolar disorder yeah. um, 
in the very last couple of years of his life um, in the midst of the weapons trial. I mean, Adam was facing a jail sentence of, I think, 15 years. It was um, the maximum sentence that he could have received for the amount of illegal weaponry any, that he had. And, yeah, interestingly, with Adam, he was using those weapons to shoot paint pots and spray cans in front of canvases in a kind of return to this kind of early... Um, really, you know, strangely assembled works that he was making in his early um, years. I think, you know, you you talk about global ideas um, through through specificity, not through trying to be general. So we certainly didn't look theoretically at, like, the link between, you know, madness and creativity. And to be honest, for me, I probably wasn't that interested in that idea. Mm-hmm. What I am interested in is were the things that made Adam up and the strange puzzle of how he got to where he got to and how much of that was personal, how much of that was structural, how much of it was cultural, how much of it was family, how much of it was the material that he was dealing with. Because I think when it comes to those sort of psychological studies, it's very difficult to actually put your finger down and say, oh, well, yes, more creative people are, you know, more erratic, they're more erratically, you know, whatever the statistic might be, I think you you can probably trace that through and find, you know, several reasons for what's going on there. And I don't doubt that there is a certain link between mental ill health and people that tend to be more creative or look at the world differently. But the film certainly wasn't out to sort of celebrate that. I think the film was just out to um, have a really detailed you know, conversation about that. And part of that's personal too. I mean, for all of us who work in this industry and who follow these sort of paths and whether it's Eric as a writer or whether it's Adam or myself or Dan or Toby or any of the other key people involved, um, it's a precarious existence, especially in this country, um, that values its artists in a certain way and has a certain unholy relationship with, with these people who who do things that are outside of the norm. And um, so that's that's the engagement we were trying to have with it. You mentioned before the nature of the biopic, how sometimes these films have to follow a certain convention and, and, yeah. and so on and so forth. Was there something or a series of things that you knew from the get-go you did not want to do when you were touching this material? Well, I certainly did You know, like there's an old Orson Welles quote, which is a happy ending just depends on where you stop the story. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that, you know, there was much choice about where this would end. I didn't think there was much choice about what period of time it would detail. I didn't think this was going to be a film about a young boy from the northern beaches of Sydney discovering painting and then winning the Archibald Prize. That was not going to be the story that we told because it was not the story that Adam's life played out. And when you look at probably, you know, the most notable Australian biopic is Chopper, um, and you look at the relationship of Adam to Chopper. Adam was actually Chopper Reed's best man mm. um, at his wedding, and they were extremely close. And um, that byline of that film, Endurance is... Oh, no, that's our, that's our byline. Or that was Adam's byline. Endurance is more important than truth. Chopper's byline was never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. That's true. The problem yeah. with Adam's story was that the truth very much got in the way of a good yarn. Reality intruded it couldn't be a joke anymore. It, it accelerated. Um, so that forced a certain, you know, um, a part of the story to be told and to be to be focused on. 
Um, but, you know, I think also just one of those things that films about artists tend to be films about, about genius. They tend to be films about the great, the great painters. And I think a, Adam was an extraordinarily exciting painter. When I go back and I look at Adam's work, and we use Adam's work a lot in the film and use it as a kind of key to unpick him, to draw closer to him behind all these veils and masks that he's constructed. Um, but to talk about an artist that wasn't just a film about some you know, ineffable quality of genius that you'll never understand made it really interesting because he, he's, he is such a recognisably normal life in some ways. And then he took it in such a remarkable and obviously, you know, dark direction. Um, this movie, you talking, we're talking about three, four years getting it made, written, etc. Um, you've helped, I've talked to other filmmakers in regards to living with a movie for a very long time. Um, now this movie is coming out uh, next week. What's that feeling like? To f- are you able to say, finally say goodbye to it? Is it? Are you able to let it go? Or was the experience making this movie so intimate, being your first directorial debut, but this is something you can never let go of? No, it's an extraordinarily positive experience on that front. And, and what I learned, I learned for the better. And, you know, I think part of the thing for me was that one of the reasons I'd never directed stuff was I didn't believe that I had permission to. I didn't believe that I had any right to go out and do it. Now, I've loved cinema my entire life, but I, I, I thought what, what sort of allows a person to actually do that, mm. to say that they're going to um, do that and then accumulate those skills um, to, to, to become a, a filmmaker. And it, it, it allowed me to do that, and, and that was extraordinary. It's not as though, you know, the themes are a part of my life. You know, the reason I went to tell this story was because of a personal affinity with this story um, for any number of reasons. And um, it's, it, didn't, it wasn't a catharsis. It didn't shape me. It hasn't changed me. It's just a part of my life now. The main thing for me, I mean, I think at this point, being an Australian filmmaker, making an independent film in today's climate where Netflix is investing whatever it is, 1.2 billion in content and people are watching it that way, is a feeling of hope that people will get out to see it and the hope that people will see this in the cinema and engage with it in the cinema because it's a, it was my ambition to make a really cinematic film and this is an extraordinarily low-budget film, but I don't think you'd know it. It's made at about half the budget of a film like Snowtown. Um was to have that ambition to see it on a large scale and two of the strongest cinematographers in the country shooting it, sound firm who've handled some of the biggest films in the world, handling the post-production on the film, and that's through Robert Connolly and through his contacts that we were able to have that structure. Um, but I want people to see it in the cinema. That's the, that's the main thing that I, that I have now. I love film. I love going into a dark room and turning everything off. It's about the closest thing to meditation that I have, and I love that it changes you. I love that when you see a film and you go into a place that you couldn't go into otherwise, it grows your empathy and that wonderful feeling of coming out of a film and seeing life a little bit differently. That's what I want for people, and, and I just hope that people appreciate the film. I hope they like it. So for everyone out there, May 16, Acute Misfortune in Selector Strength Cinemas, I highly recommend everyone watch this movie do watch the movie in cinemas um and in fact thomas you were doing a few q and a's uh, for some select some screenings as well yeah that's right 
right, there's a whole series of Q&As and special screenings that are happening around the country with guests including myself, Dan Henshaw, Robert Connolly, Toby Wallace, Joel Edgerton, um, and a number of special, uh, you know, uh, special speakers and moderators and that sort of thing will be holding Q&As and all the details can be found on acutemisfortune.com. So May 16, uh, Acute Misfortune Stream Cinemas, go to acutemisfortune.com to check out our screening times, days, uh, when you're going to have those Q&A screenings. And Thomas Wright, I thank you very much for joining me today. And congratulations on the movie. I really do hope as well uh, do we get to see more from you uh, from behind, this, behind the camera. Um, I think your directorial debut is just one of the, the finest I've seen. So congratulations to you and congratulations on the movie. Thank you. Thanks so much, Frank.